Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. You guys can turn to Matthew 18. I'm actually going to have Bill stay up here to uh, read this morning. We actually have two passages that he's going to read from this morning. He's going to start in Philemon and then go to Matthew 18, but we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 18, so that's why you can uh, turn there now. Thank you, Danny. Um, So, verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me for even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And then in Matthew 18, 21, 22, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I, uh, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Thank you, Bill. All right. This week, as I was uh, preparing for this morning, I was thinking about this question, uh, and I'll throw it to you guys too. Have you un- ever wondered why Jesus needed to die on the cross? Okay, that's kind of a silly question to throw out at church, but I was really thinking about this week. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did he have to? Why did he have to die? Right? Because if God is really God, couldn't he just somehow have dismissed our sins and let us move on? Did he really have to sacrifice his son? Did, our, did the forgiveness of our sins really require death? Couldn't he just forgive and move on? I mean, he's God, right? It kind of sounds like one of those trick questions your kids ask, like, can God make a rock that's too big for him to lift, right? Because God's omnipotent, can do anything he wants. Couldn't he just simply dismiss our sins? And as we continue to talk about uh, forgiveness this week, I think we'll find out some of the reason why. And it has to do with what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Last week, we talked about how we can identify with Onesimus in Paul's letter to Philemon, that we all need to be forgiven. Like Onesimus, our sins are a debt that we owe, that we cannot pay, uh, but that Christ has reached down to pay our debt on our behalf, and now we are forgiven. No longer are we identified by shame and by guilt, but identified as free, forgiven sons and daughters of God. And yet, of course, we still have this sinful nature within us and an enemy that wages war against us. And it's oftentimes really hard to live into that identity as a son and daughter of God. But if there was anything to hear from last week's message, it was for us to rest in that identity. For us to uh, cherish and receive God's forgiveness in our life as a son or daughter. 
We see in Philemon what it means to be forgiven, but do we really know what forgiveness is? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Do we know what the Bible, God's words to us, say forgiveness is? Right? I, I mean, you guys have some idea, right? Like, I'm trying to teach my kids what forgiveness is. Y'all, you need to forgive your sister. I'm sure she didn't mean to hit you on the face like that. You know, those kind of things. Like, I'm trying to teach them what forgiveness is, but am I teaching them what the Bible says forgiveness is or something else? You know, is it Bible or is it Bluey from online? What am I teaching my kids forgiveness is? I want to teach them what God says forgiveness is. So today we're going to look more deeply into that idea of forgiveness. What it is, what it's not, why it's important. And how God's idea of forgiveness is not only important for, uh, has theological importance for our eternal destination, right? Our eternal life, but also has practical implications for our life today. Because forgiveness, forgiveness is a core practice for those who follow Jesus. And if I was going to have a thesis statement for uh, today's teaching, that would be it. Forgiveness is a core practice for those who follow Jesus. And Jesus cares about this topic. Jesus cares about this topic and talked about it often with his disciples. In fact, he told them to pray it every day, right? This is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. You guys are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, right? Okay, let's test it out. When's the last time you said the Lord's Prayer? You guys ready? Let's say it all together out loud. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, King James Version out there. Love it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All my King James people out there. Love it. Um, Forgiveness is something that we can all recognize as important, at least up here. But either we usually fail to consider it as important as Jesus does, or we misunderstand it, and oftentimes both. With Philemon, we get to see forgiveness in praxis, but today I want to talk about what Jesus teaches forgiveness is. And that leads us to our main text today in Matthew 18, Jesus' most clear and concise teaching on forgiveness. It's going to be a small detour from Philemon, but we'll probably do some touch and goes in there as well along the way. So if you guys haven't turned to Matthew 18, we're going to be in Matthew 18. And in that, we're going to see Jesus brilliantly teach us what forgiveness is through a parable. And maybe for us today, he's going to teach us what forgiveness is not. The passage in Matthew, uh, starting in verse, uh, where Bill just started, in verse 21, The passage in Matthew happens within the context of Jesus teaching his disciples a new way to be human, what the kingdom of God looks like and acts like, what it means for their everyday life, which is contrary to our human nature, right? It's contrary to our broken human nature, and it's contrary to the world we're living in. This is We often call it the the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Because it's contrary to how the world, see, world sees things and to, contrary to our sinful, broken nature. This kingdom way of living isn't an, our natural heart posture. We are wrongdoers, right? We do wrong, which means we're broken. And that brokenness is going to affect all the areas of our life, including 
relationships, right? What does that mean? That means conflict, right? That means conflict. Our brokenness results in conflict, interpersonal conflict. And to know whether this topic of forgiveness is relevant for us today, I only need to ask, has anyone ever experienced unresolved conflict, right? You don't have to raise your hand. I think everyone would raise their hand, right? Some of you guys are thinking, nah, it's always their problem. Well, we'll see. Um, But we're kind of messy people, right? We're messy people. Therefore, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to hurt each other. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that, both practically and emotionally, when that happens? And when you hurt someone, because we will, what if you apologize, but they don't seem to care? Or they don't care enough for you? When someone wrongs us, the Bible actually gives us very clear instructions on what to do. It's actually in uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. You go to them, but what if you can't go to that person because they've moved away or maybe they've uh, passed on? What if you apologize, or what if, excuse me, what if they apologize, but you don't feel like it's enough? They didn't apologize hard enough for me. That doesn't count, right? What do you do with that? All of that, all of that deals with forgiveness, and its deadly counterpart, unforgiveness, which is what Jesus' parable hones in on. Forgiveness is important. It's a core practice for those who follow Jesus, and it's unfortunate that even within the church, the community of God where forgiveness is meant to be a hallmark of who we are, we sometimes get it wrong. The disciples got it wrong too, right? Don't feel singled out. The disciples got it wrong. Peter didn't get it. Look how Peter talks about it to Jesus. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And for Peter and the others, seven times was huge, right? This is Peter gloating. This is him bragging about how patient he is. Three times was considered to be an acceptable limit by the rabbis of that time. Right, So just imagine Peter's trying to flex in front of his other disciples as many as seven times, O oh Lord, shall I forgive him? And Jesus' response is not probably what they were expecting. He, Jesus, again, flips the script on what they thought they knew about living the way of Jesus. Because Peter is expecting Jesus to congratulate him here. Peter is expecting Jesus to say, wow, Peter, seven times, huh? You're so long-suffering, Peter, Wow. No, he doesn't say that, though. Look what he says in verse 22. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations say 70 times seven. There would have been a collective gasp from the disciples at that moment. What? 77 times. And Jesus here isn't proposing some sort of math solution as if we're supposed to be counting and it's 76. You better watch out. I only got one more. It's not like that. The idea here is unlimited number of times. An idea which is completely contrary to our nature. Think about it. We want to know, okay, when does it stop? Surely there must be a limit to this. You don't mean forever, Lord, do you? The only other place that you see these two numbers, 7 and 77, together in the Bible is back in Genesis 4, a story you guys are probably familiar with. Jesus here is producing this very poetic callback to that story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. You guys know that story. Cain murders his brother Abel. After he murders his brother, he then goes and leaves to build his own city. 
He names it after his son, Enoch. Uh, This isn't the same Enoch that was later taken up to heaven miraculously. Uh, So Cain names the city after his son, Enoch. That city would really become marked by Cain's vengeful and murderous nature. One of Cain's descendants who would come to rule that city, his name was Lamech. And Lamech killed someone for hitting him. And he wrote a poem about himself, which is kind of funny. Well, the poem's not funny. The fact that he wrote it about himself is funny. I think you're supposed to get other people to write poems about you. But he wrote this poem. So Lamech writes this poem about himself, and it says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's saying, some might take revenge seven times, which is a lot. But me, I take revenge 77-fold right? 77-fold, unlimited vengeful wrath upon those who do me wrong. Always vengeful wrath. That's what defined Lamech. But isn't that kind of what defines our hearts, right? Surely no one here is doing the murder that Lamech is doing, but man, when we feel wronged, our natural posture is not only do we want justice, but we want vengeance. We see ourselves as better than that person, and that person needs, that person deserves to pay for their wrongdoing towards us. We want judgment, and we don't want threefold or even sevenfold. We want 77-fold judgment. There's a place, as you're driving to my house, there's a place where two lanes merge into one. And there I have seen the vengeful wrath of humanity play out more than once, as you can imagine. It wasn't so long ago that two cars were again going at it. One thought they should have been in front. The other one said, no, I should be in front. And they continued on a quarter mile down the road, side by side, long after it had gone from two down to one lane. Finally, the car pulls in the front, and he gets what he wants, right? He's in front of the other car. That's what he wanted. In his mind, that's justice. But of course, that wasn't enough. At the next stoplight, the guy gets out of his car, walks back to the other car, wagging his finger and cussing the guy out. It wasn't enough that the guy got what he wanted, which was in front of the other car. He had to make the other driver know the wrong that he had done in some very colorful language. And of course, I couldn't do a sermon on forgiveness without mentioning our hearts when we drive, right? We turn into different creatures, it seems like. The Lamech in us comes out somehow when we drive. We're vengeful by nature. Lamech's poem about himself is the epitome of our human nature. But on some levels, it kind of makes sense, right? Because God puts within us a sense of right and wrong, and that wrongs should be punished. This is what Romans 2 talks about. In Romans 2, it talks about how unbelievers, even though they they don't have the law, Scripture, they do what the law requires of them. Their conscience bears witness of them, right? A sense of justice has at least, at least dimly been imprinted upon us by God. But here's the rub. Our sinful nature has taken that sense of justice, which is from God, and completely twisted it, right? Completely twisted it. No longer is it about justice, but it's about payment, making the other person pay. I think one of the hardest things for us to reconcile when we read scripture is 
the judgment of God and the love of God or the mercy of God. Typically, we're prone to latch onto one or the other. We read about God destroying wayward nations, livestock and all, in the Old Testament, and then read about him spending time with children and lepers in the New Testament. And we ask ourselves, is this the same God? Right now, my wife and I are doing a reading plan where you read a little bit in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament, right? And you get these two different pictures. In the Old Testament, if we're not careful, we tend to only see a God who is full of judgment upon evil, while in the New Testament, we tend to only see a God of love and compassion. We, view, we almost view them as separate beings, or we think something must have happened between the book of Malachi in the Old Testament and the book of Matthew, and God somehow changed his disposition towards humanity. But of course, that's, that's not true. God has always been a God of love from cover to cover, and he has always been just. But we can be capricious in how we want God to be at certain different times, right? When someone wrongs us, when someone cuts me off on the freeway, I want the judgment of God, right? Smite them, Lord, in my wrath, right? That's what I want. But when I'm, but when I'm the one doing wrong, it becomes a different prayer. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me in your great compassion, Lord, right? Yet scripture is clear that God is both just against wrongdoing and merciful towards the wrongdoer. He is both full of love and completely just. To us, it might feel dichotomous as if the two cannot completely exist in one reality, that it has to be one or the other. But of course, God is perfectly both. We can actually see this in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, uh, Moses is encountering God on the mountain. And God describes himself to Moses. So this is God's speaking words about himself to Moses. He says, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, the problem is if we view God as only judge, only judge, then we're going to see him as cool and distant, distributing punishment from on high to the wrongdoers. Yet if we see God as merciful but without justice, we create a God who is soft and cuddly but incapable of dealing with our pains and hurt or incapable of dealing with the the evil in this world. God is both full of love and completely just. A book from our resource table out back captures this beautifully when it talks about God as a God of justice who will surely judge evil, but also a God whose heart is full of mercy and love towards his children. Insomuch that God's justice, a thing that he cannot deny because of his perfection, can almost be seen as something he must do, whereas his mercy and love towards us is something that he longs to do. And indeed, God's God's acts of justice in our life are for a higher end, not just simply for justice's sake. It is his great love for us that requires that justice, but does not delight in its pain. The idea of forgiveness, what we're talking about today, takes into account both love and justice. It is, it's this upside-down nature of God's kingdom and why I believe forgiveness is a core practice for those who follow Jesus. Forgiveness is not love without justice, nor is it justice without love. For forgiveness still requires a payment but it also requires a release of consequence. Of course, it's 
It's not in our nature, right? Peter didn't get it. We don't naturally get it. We're like Lamech, demanding not only justice, but to make the other person pay. Last week, I was uh, going for a walk in my neighborhood. I was actually on the phone with Trevor talking about this teaching when uh, our neighborhood mailman pulled off on the side of the road to let another car go by, and the mailman got stuck in the dirt on the side, and his wheels were spinning. Uh, Mail trucks not known for their four-wheel drive, apparently. But another neighbor in his truck starts driving by, and I flag him down, and I say, hey, the mailman got stuck. I bet, you know, your truck could just pull him out real quick. And the guy looks at me, and he's like, no, that guy's an idiot, and drives off. (laughs) I was like, oh, what did I just get into? What's happening here? Um, So anyways, I help push the mail truck out, and then I'm walking home, and that same truck uh, guy in the truck drives back, and he sees me, flags me down, and he says, He says, that guy drives too fast. There's no way I'm going to help him. And that was his response. Like, as if he somehow was making our poor mailman pay by not, you know, like that he had some crazy wrong done to him. But that's us outside of Jesus, living with that unforgiveness. We not only need to push against that sinful nature and learn to forgive, but we must, we need forgiveness for that sinful nature itself. That's why it's so important for us to understand what Jesus teaches forgiveness is and what it's not. So let's let's look at the story Jesus uses, the parable Jesus uses to teach us, to illustrate for us forgiveness. And it's going to provide several gospel principles for us along the way. So we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 23. Verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, 10,000 talents. I don't know what a talent is. They're not in circulation today, but thankfully, my Bible has a little footnote, and I'm sure yours does too. If I go down there, it says, a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. One talent's worth 20 years' wages for a laborer. If you do the math, and I did, That means 200,000 years worth of salary is what is owed to the master, right? 200,000 years. The idea here is billions of dollars, right? An an amount that cannot be repaid. There would have been like a little chuckle from the disciples because this amount is so huge. We're talking about the, you know, net worth of kingdoms here. You know, my kids like to make up big numbers. This is 500 million thousand billion. That's pretty much the number that we have here. The idea is that there's no way for this servant to pay this amount. Verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. This is, this is the real joke of the parable, because there's no way this guy is going to be able to pay the zillion dollars he knows. He somehow thinks he can pay. And he stupidly just asks for patience as if all he needed was time from the master to pay this back. He doesn't need time. He needs forgiveness. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master has pity on him. Other translations say compassion. He he forgave the servant, released the servant from paying what was owed, but the master still had to pay, right? He had to take that loss of a billion dollars 
onto his own accounts. And that leads us to the first principle, gospel principle of forgiveness, is that there is still a payment. When we forgive someone, there is a payment for that wrongdoing, but we are choosing to absorb that payment onto ourselves when we forgive. If I loan my car to a friend and my friend wrecks the car, and because I'm so gracious and loving and full of mercy and kind, I say, don't worry about it, I forgive you. I still have to pay to fix that car, or I have to live with the loss of a car that's not worth as much because it's wrecked. The car's still wrecked. If I forgive him and say, don't worry about it, you don't owe anything, he doesn't owe anything, but I'm going to take that loss on myself or have to pay to have it fixed. We see this clearly in Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul recognizes that there is still a payment to be made, the cost of Onesimus running away. But even Paul in that letter says, you know what, I'll pay that. If you don't want to absorb that loss from you, I'll pay it. That's what Paul says. There is still a payment. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there's no payment. It means relinquishing the right to exact that payment from the wrongdoer, to release someone's uh, debt to you, let go of what they owe you. Either you pay it yourself or you take the loss onto your own accounts. Justice is they pay. Forgiveness is you pay. But somebody always pays. Forgiveness is letting go of what is owed us. It's the master letting go of the billions owed to him. It's letting go of our right for retribution. But this is important. It's not always a release of the complete consequences of their actions. Oftentimes, there needs to be consequences from the wrong, even while there is forgiveness. A few years ago, a uh, drunk driver drove into a house on my parents' street. Now, thankfully, everyone was okay. They smashed up the garage, um, but everyone was okay. In a situation like that, there can be forgiveness from the homeowner, but the man still should and did have his driver's license taken away, right? There still was consequences for that, even if there is forgiveness from the one who was wronged. Forgiveness is giving up our right to repayment, but it's not always exonerating the person from all the consequences of their actions, which leads us to another gospel principle of forgiveness in that forgiveness does not mean ignoring nor condoning or tolerating the wrong even. In verse 27, we move to the master's response, uh, one which is you know full of pity and mercy, pity that that feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering or misfortunes of another. But the master releases the servant. The servant's actions cannot be tolerated. Although he's been forgiven, the master is not going to tolerate him any further as a servant. The master puts in place between him and the servant a separation. Wrongs done against us, especially ones that hurt us deeply, right? In the areas maybe of self-worth or finances or physical well-being, the Bible does call us to forgive, but it does not ask us to tolerate further offense or sinfulness. In fact, Jesus tells us very clearly what to do when someone's uh, wronged us. If you just look a little bit higher on your page in Matthew 18, there's a section there that my Bible titles, If Your Brother Sins Against You. And in it, it talks about what we do when someone wrongs us. The first thing you do is you go to that person. The second thing that happens is you bring someone else with you and go to that person. 
And if still they're unrepentant and haven't turned from their ways, the third thing you do, well, you bring in the broader, broader Christian community and talk to that person. So here's a question. If initially you go to that person and they don't repent or turn away from their wrongdoing, does Jesus ever imagine a situation where you're alone with that person again? No. Jesus recognizes that sometimes boundaries are important. And it's unfortunate that the the church has not always gotten this right. There are too many stories and articles and podcasts where the Bible is wielded to defend the guilty instead of protect the innocent. That's why it's so important for us to understand what Jesus teaches forgiveness is and what it's not. It's not condoning wrongdoing. It's not tolerating wrongdoing or even ignoring it. And hear this. If you are in a dangerous situation, such as one of abuse, God telling us to forgive is not God telling you to stay in a dangerous situation. Okay, let me say that again. If you are in a dangerous situation, God telling us in his word to forgive is not him telling you to stay in a dangerous situation. This is so important for us to understand. In fact, we're going to be spending more time next week going into this further because we do believe it is critically important for our age. Another principle of forgiveness, and this one is kind of like another common myth, something that is often believed but is not true, is that forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Those two things are different. We just discussed how the servant was released. He was no longer under the employ of the master. So apparently in Jesus' perfect understanding of forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiving someone is not the same as reconciling with someone. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship, right? Bringing it back to what it was. That takes action from both parties coming together to knit back together what was torn. Forgiveness doesn't take both parties. Forgiveness doesn't take both parties. Forgiveness is personal. And this is actually related to what we're going to see later in verse 35 about how forgiveness is from our heart. But forgiveness doesn't take both parties. You can forgive someone, but not necessarily be friends with that person again, or even acquaintances with that person again. And maybe in some cases, you shouldn't be with that person again, right? You can still forgive, but it doesn't mean reconciliation. Let's continue Jesus' parable here, picking it up again in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, denarii, again, not in common circulation right now. Uh, I go to my footnotes, and it says a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. A day's wage. So a hundred days worth of salary. So maybe, you know, ten to twenty thousand dollars, which... Sounds like, especially to me, you know, no small chunk of change. But when you, it's laughable when you consider how it's compared to the zillions of dollars that the servant already owes, right? It's a laughable amount. And, see, and the servant seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. It's interesting. He says the same thing. 
in Jesus' story. He says the same thing that the first servant says, right? He says, have patience with me and I will repay you. And realistically, this is a debt that could be paid off, right? If it's only a, maybe a hundred days worth of labor, this is realistically something that the servant could pay off. But look at the response of the first servant. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This servant, although he had been given forgiveness, he himself was unforgiving. And where did the heart of the unforgiving servant lead him? It led him to bondage, right? That's our, another principle of forgiveness. Unforgiveness leads to bondage. Verse 34, it says, uh, he was delivered to the jailers. There's a footnote on that for me that says tortures is another translation of that. Bondage, torture. When we're wronged, our sinful nature, like Lamech, looks to exact not only justice, but often vengeance. And we, we think we're making the other person pay when we're withholding forgiveness, right? We think we're somehow making them pay. Oh, they're going to pay, right? But in reality, we're the ones paying for our unforgiving heart. We're the ones held in bondage, tortured by that unforgiving nature. By choosing not to forgive, the servant thought he somehow held, held power over the other servant. The scary thing is, it was, it was him who was held in bondage by the power of that sin. According to our text, the unforgiving servant was tortured by the very thing he thought he was using to torture the other servant. It was him who was in bondage to the sin in him because he did not forgive. And maybe you don't think this is describing you like, I've never choked someone out before like that, you know? And that's true, but maybe it does describe our hearts even just some of the time, right? Maybe it describes our hearts some of the time where we have been, we have received this amazing forgiveness from God and yet we are withholding it from others who owe us nothing in comparison to what we have owed God. Unfor and this is crazy. I learned this this week. All right, I'm in my late 30s and I'm still learning stuff. This is great. Unforgiveness isn't even a word. Did you know that? Unforgiveness isn't even a word. I type it in, you know, to my computer and it's got the red dotted line under it. It's not a word. Unforgiving, the adjective is, but the opposite of forgiveness, the noun, is punishment. Is punishment. When we are unforgiving, that's what we experience. Punishment. By the way, I'm still going to use that word, though, even though it's not a word. Not only does not forgiving leave the servant in bondage, but it also led him to be irrational. Look at verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He put him in prison until he could pay. That's not a great place to make money and pay a debt. And remember, this is, this is an amount of money that he could have worked and paid off. If the first servant actually wanted that money, 
the best thing would have been to do is to give that other servant time to pay it off, not put him in prison where he couldn't do anything to pay it off. It no longer became about justice. It didn't become about that amount of money anymore. It became about vengeance, right? Not only paying the actual debt, but making the other servant pay for something completely different. This servant, his choice to not forgive led him to become a slave to it. It led him to be irrational. And it also made him blind. It also made him blind. We become blind to the great imbalance of our own wrongs. In verse 31, it talks about how the other servants were the ones who saw this and brought it to their master. The first servant was totally blind. He had just been forgiven a billion-dollar debt. And he turns around and chokes another man out for $10,000. And he was blind to what was going on. The other people around him had to point out that that wasn't right. And oftentimes, we need others to point it out in our life too, right? We need others to point it out in our lives too. We need that Christian community that God has talked about and that we were talking about a few weeks ago. We need that community. When, we, when he was unforgiving, he was imprisoned, irrational, and blind. This is one of the reasons why we see forgiveness as being so important to Jesus. And in verse 35, we see how important it is to Jesus. Look at those words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive. That's kind of heavy, right? That's heavy. That's strong language. And it's there to serve as a powerful warning and a reminder of how important this topic is to Jesus. And I don't think Jesus here is talking about an unforgivable sin, like, uh uh-oh, you didn't forgive that person cutting you off. Well, you're probably not going to be in heaven. No, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's some unforgivable sin. But Jesus seems to say that an unforgiving nature is not consistent with the gospel of Christ. Jesus is saying that if you follow him, you are marked by a new way of living, one of forgiveness. If you are perpetually unforgiving, then your life is incongruous, not in harmony with being a follower of Jesus. And forgiveness is not a matter of just saying the words either. That leads us to our last principle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart. The last words in our passage in verse 34, from your heart. It's personal, deep. It's not surface level. And of course, here, heart is a metaphor, right? Heart is a metaphor. When we think about heart in our current culture, what do we think about? Love, right? Emotions, right? When you think about the heart, oh, I broke my heart. Uh, We think about the emotions. Well, did you know that in the Bible, there is no word for brain? There's no word for brain in the Bible. You can fact check me later on this, all right? There's no word for brain. Heart is what we have in our Western culture, often separated into heart and brain. It is our emotions and our will, choice and feeling. Forgiveness is first a choice that you make that then you begin to feel. Here's why that's important. You will likely never feel like forgiveness. You'll likely never feel like forgiving. It has to be a choice that gradually becomes an emotive posture of our hearts. This is not lip service, right? And this is the part that of 
<laughs> this is a part of Jesus' teaching that I think hits me at a gut level. Because I know some good Christian responses like, oh, I forgive you. It's okay, I forgive you. But these words aren't always reflecting a real choice in me. Because inside, I might still be thinking, well, I'm totally right. <laughs> right? I'm totally right. I'm better. Here's what it looks like for me. It's the, I forgive you, but. Okay? You've done this. It's very closely related to the, I'm sorry, but. Right? I forgive you, but next time remember to turn on the dishwasher. Okay? Right? That's not, that's not forgiveness. Right? That's not forgiveness. And excuse the juvenile language here, but if there's a but, it stinks. Okay? If there has to be some caveat on the end of either I forgive you or I'm sorry, those don't count. Great preachers uh, like Spurgeon, he talked about this, how a pastor's message must first be born in them before it is delivered from the pulpit. And I found that to be so true. Like if the message isn't something that God is currently already teaching within me, God does the painful work of exposing it during the week that I'm ready to teach. Makes me not want to teach on certain topics, right? But I found that out this week as, as, the, as the magnifying glass of this parable was put upon my own heart. I realized, man, there's, there's times where I'm, I'm, I might be just doing lip service because I can say the words, but it's not reflective always of my true heart with my family even. And if that unforgiving heart is not met head on by the gospel, it leads to harboring bitterness. A bitterness that eats away at our souls. Forgiveness is first a choice. One that is made over and over and over again. Even for the same wrong. So much so that it becomes a posture. Not three times, not seven times, but 77 times. Always. It becomes a posture of our heart. It becomes our new way of living as followers of Christ. Jesus masterfully used parables in his earthly ministry to teach people about himself and about the kingdom of God. And it's not hard to see ourselves as the unforgiving servant in this story, right? Of course, no one here was thinking of themselves as the compassionate master, I'm sure. But it's not hard to see ourselves as that unforgiving servant. And certainly Peter, who asked that initial question, could not help but catch Jesus' drift as Jesus is telling this story. In it, we are just like the unforgiving servant. Even through those gospel principles, we talked about how there's still payment. Well, we're trying to pay off a debt that we never could. And there's a laughable distance between what our sins cost and the petty wrongs done against us by other broken people. Forgiveness does not mean tolerating wrong, yet it's us asking God to tolerate our wrongdoing, right? It's us crying, just have patience with me, O Lord. Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. We want grace, but one that does not condemn our sins. It's our sinful nature of wrath like Lamech, which grabs others by the throat, choking them to exact judgment that isn't even ours to a lot. Unforgiveness leads to bondage. It's us in bondage like the servants, being tortured for our unforgiving hearts, where the pain and suffering is now ours. We thought we could hold it over the other person as payment for their wrongs, yet it is us that is being held under it. It's us blinded to our own forgiving heart. There's a plank in my eye while I'm trying to point out the sliver in another's. 
Forgiveness is a matter of the heart, yet it's us just giving platitudes of forgiveness, lip service, yet harboring bitterness inside. Bitterness that destroys because we can't figure out how to be just and to love at the same time. In short, we are wretches who need a compassionate master to take pity upon us. But of course, this parable teaches us about Jesus. While Lamech is the archetype of our humanity representing the worst in us, Jesus is the archetype of who we are meant to be as his followers, unlimited in our forgiveness. This parable shows us the cross, the cross, the perfect representation of both God's love and God's justice. And this is, again, we can look at it through the lens of the several principles we went through of forgiveness. There's still a payment. Christ paid it. Christ paid it. We were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Forgiveness does not mean tolerating. God doesn't tolerate sin, right? God's wrath against sin is unmistakable. You can see Psalm 5.4. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. But get this. Not only are we forgiven, but we're reconciled when we believe by Christ. We have been forgiven as servants, but reconciled as friends, John 15.15. Unforgiveness leads to bondage. But Christ has set us free, and whom the Son has set free is free indeed, John 8. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart, a matter of our will and emotion. Christ willingly went to the cross, Ephesians 2.5, because of his great love for us, Ephesians 2.4. Jesus describes his heart in Matthew 11 as gentle and lowly, whose great desire is the, that we might know him as he knows and loves us, John 17. And forgiveness is God's heart posture towards us. Always, 77-fold, unlimited, even as it's us committing the same wrongs over and over. In the end of our story here, the servant got justice. The servant got justice. He was in prison because he didn't pay his debt. He was extended forgiveness, but ultimately did not receive it and got justice. We often think we want justice, at least for everyone else, right? But if we even knew a tenth of our wickedness before a perfect God, we would fall on our faces. And yet hear the words of Jesus that say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We have a master who took away our shame and our guilt, paid the debt that we owed that could never pay, and he nailed it to a cross to be remembered no more. He not only forgave our past sins, but our current and future sins. His forgiveness is 77-fold towards us. It is his heart posture towards us always. We need that forgiveness, and we need to extend that forgiveness to others. The wrongs against you might be many, and we'll talk more next week about finding the power to forgive. God doesn't ask you to tolerate or ignore, but he does call us to forgive. And just imagine if we lived like that, right? Imagine if we lived like that. That's God's kingdom. That's God's way to be human. And it's a core practice of who we are meant to be. There's freedom there. Not just sometimes or often, but continually. Continually. Let's pray. Lord God, we are the unforgiving servant, owing billions, Lord, and yet you reach down to pay our debt. 
a payment that costs you deeply. The life of your son, Jesus. And God, you call us to a new way to be human. You call us to live as ambassadors of your kingdom, forgiving others. And Lord, we need help. (laughs) We need help to do that, Jesus. So God, help us to have your understanding of forgiveness and help uh, use this story to remind us to live for you as your followers, eager to give forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.